Welcome, Coffin Bond listeners. Podcast 73 here today, and I'm going to shoot this one straight over to Tony Coffin to run today. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, today, I'm going to introduce a gentleman from SJS Strategy. Um, I do like their tagline, Navigating Tomorrow. Um, and in uh, the the world that we're living in right now, thinking about tomorrow and where we're going, it, there's that little bit of uncertainty and this is your forte, uh, the two of you. So I will introduce both the directors if that's okay. So first of all, since Synth Asenthi uh, is a co-founder and director. So for the past 20 years, uh, Synth has led and managed transformation programs, working with senior executive teams for major organizations such as Vodafone, AGL and TAL. Uh, he's gained deep expertise in customer experience, program delivery and management, as well as leadership coaching. He's also a current mentor um, of RMIT University's Venture, Men Venture, Venture Mentoring Service, uh, where he feels very privileged uh, to lend his knowledge, expertise and experience to Melbourne's thriving startup ecosystem, which is, uh, I was in an entire podcast yesterday based on startups. Synthel was uh, quite interesting here in Melbourne and uh, what's going on. And Sander van Amersvoort. Now, I hope I said that correctly, Sander, because I've, I've known you for 10 plus years as just Sander. It's easier. <laughs> so, right. so it's, um, but Sander is a strategy development in both uh, public and private sectors, has been a common thread of his career. Uh, he's most recently as a director of policy and research at the Committee for Melbourne. Uh, where he was fortunate enough to have led the Melbourne 4.0 task force, which looked at the future of Melbourne in the context of the fourth industrial revolution. Some, the, industri the third industrial revolution and the second, the ma major industrial revolution in the 1800s is something that I'm fascinated by in history um, in respect to where we're going. Uh, he's a director of SJS Strategy. He also serves on the advisory boards of Swinburne University Smart Cities Research Institute and the Global Business Innovation Platform at RMIT University. And I think in 2017, you were a TED Talk presenter. Uh, your 17 minutes um, in video, which has got many hits on uh, LinkedIn and YouTube, so which was a fantastic presentation there. So these two gentlemen, I'm going to start asking you a couple of questions, but to start with, um, if you can tell our audience, what is SJS strategy? Tell us what you do. Yeah, no, thank you, Tony. And thanks for having us. It's, uh, it's great to, to see you again. And uh, we've always got a bit of history in the, in the triathlons uh, that uh, I don't get as much to do to do as much anymore these days. But I do uh, nothing. I do nothing, Sander. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't even go for a swim at the moment. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> yeah. No, so we, uh, so it's, yeah, so Synth and I co-founded SGS Strategy uh, about two years ago, almost two years ago. And uh, so SGS Strategy, we are a scenario planning consultancy where we help leaders and organizations really make sense of the future. And we do that by using scenario planning to really explore the future. And so at the core of scenario planning is that you can't predict the future. No one can. But what you can do is explore that range of plausible futures. And that's really powerful because now you can actually create a shared understanding with yourselves and your team around what are the challenges and opportunities for your organization. And that really enables leaders then to make confident decisions to really develop robust uh, future-proof strategies to, to navigate tomorrow. And so we founded the business about two years ago uh, and we've been very fortunate in that period already that we've had a 
the chance to work with some amazing organizations uh, across all kinds of sectors. So we've worked in the public sector, both at state and federal level. We've worked in the private sector, uh, but also in academia and the non-for-profit. And the reason for that is that we are sector agnostic. So we are certainly not experts in any of the organizations or industries that we work in. But what we're experts in is facilitating their conversation about the future and really providing them with that toolkit to then navigate tomorrow. Okay, so just um, then a question on that. When we're looking at navigating tomorrow, obviously, uh, if we were having this conversation 12 months ago, um, and you're sitting, you and Cynthia are sitting down and you're helping us actually navigate the growth of Kofk and Bond and what we want to do, and we're going into state and you know, what are our threats, what are our opportunities, uh, things like that as well. Um, the idea of a pandemic actually closing down the entire country, uh, never mind uh, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, but the globe, um, not necessarily something that we would have planned for in advance. And, and there's other companies that have been affected quite severely by this. So when it comes to these scenario plannings, how, how, does it, how do things like this play out with you guys? So we might call you back in now and say, okay, we're here, what do we do? So how, how do these type of, now obviously there's different industries and that that you've worked in, but how do these scenarios play out? Yeah, so with scenario planning is what you do is you really look at those big external trends that are shaping our future. And, and obviously something like a pandemic uh, is something that is, is one of those events that, are, that happen from time to time, so just like hurricanes and, and, and natural disasters and things like that. What we find often in the scenarios is that we don't go through so much a list of all kinds of specific events that can happen because that's a really long list. But what we do is we really look at those big trends that are shaping the future. And you, you arrive at some scenarios for your organization's operating environments, let's say five or 10 years out. So really past your immediate horizon. And more often than not, when you look at those scenarios and they're really extreme versions of the future, you will find things in there that you say, how would, how would we have arrived at that future? And more often than not, you pick up some of those things that you say, what would really blindside us? So for an example of that is one of our clients actually had a pandemic in, in, in one of their scenarios and they had some advanced plans plans that now that this is happening, what they should be doing as an organization and what it also will mean down the line. So it's really about uh, looking at all the range of plausible futures that your organization might be faced with, understanding how you may have arrived at that future and then really understanding how you navigate that. Yeah, and just for, further to that, um, with that example that Sandra used, it gives you an opportunity, and to answer your question, Tony, to revisit your scenarios periodically. We, we often suggest you should revisit your scenarios every two years. But in this case, when, when a big event like a pandemic hits, it gives you that opportunity to do that. And this particular client of ours did some excellent work in creating an extension of two particular scenarios that had the pandemics in it. And they brought in the timeframes a little just to see, we know our organisation has just the immediate future ahead of us. Let's help them navigate the immediate future, but with a backdrop of the four scenarios that they had developed for the longer term future. So it's quite adaptable. And one of our clients has shown us a, a very good use of that during uh, a crisis. Yep. I just, can I just uh, then touch on if we talk about Melbourne in particular at the moment? So I apologize to all of our Sydney clients, uh, but I'll pick on Melbourne just at the moment. 
Melbourne uh, was voted for many years the most livable city in the world. Uh, it is a magnificent city that I love dearly. Uh, lived here all my life uh, with a couple of stints living overseas, but predominantly all my 51 years has been living here. And I've seen huge changes, even from the suburb where I grew up. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a cow in the back paddock. It's now, you know, Mooney Ponds, which is in a city, basically. Uh, there's no cows around anymore. So it's, um, but the, you know, it has seen amazing uh, demographic change. It has seen a huge economic change. It's uh, seen uh, being a banking hub, uh, then that has left. And now that has, uh, you know, come back the financial hub. But in the talk that you gave, the TED Talk, Sandy, you actually spoke about, um, you know, basically Melbourne 4.0, but also Australia, especially focusing on Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. And the talk on 4.0 was, I remember one part of the talk where you spoke about a, um, basically a pod uh, that can go from Geelong uh, to Melbourne in four minutes. Uh, you know, rather than a train line, things like that. So thinking about the future. So mm-hmm. as somebody who is in financial services or as somebody who owns an excavation business or a, or a large building and construction company, um, how, do, how do you look at that scenario planning for those different entities, for the government, uh, you know, both state and on a federal level? How do you look at that scenario planning on the different levels of where we could be in the next, you know, uh, two decades? compared to where we are now and how we actually look at planning for that with our businesses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's a great question. We, whenever we sit down with a client, we really want to understand their business well because the first thing we want to understand is what kind of business are they in and, and, and what elements of that business uh, are exposed to changes in, in their operating environment. So in this instance, like you're saying, you know, if you run an ex- excavation business, um, you know, what are some of the key things that your organization does to create, deliver and capture value? And by doing that, you can now understand, okay, great. So what are all those trends out there that are impacting your ability to create, deliver and capture value? And so in terms of when you, if you're an excavation business and you're thinking about the development of Melbourne, you start looking at what are some of those big trends that are driving population growth? What, is the, the, what are the big trends in government? How do we think about our city? Will we have a city center where all the high paying jobs are or will we keep growing on the periphery with about 2000 people a week coming into Melbourne before the pandemic. Um, how do you then also think about the global economic environment in terms of how do uh, cities like Melbourne and Sydney uh, compete on the global stage? And will they, will they potentially need to work much more better together uh, to put a value proposition on the global stage? It's also about what are some of the, the, the things that are happening in the construction industry in terms of new production me- methodologies, such as you know, 3D printing, uh, what kind of housing will people live in? Uh, where will economic activity take place? So you can imagine already just those things from the top of my head, all those different trends are are really coming together to shape your future operating environment. And that's really where scenario planning is really powerful to sit down with the client and to really understand which trends are really impacting you. How does that play out? How does that potentially play out? And how do we make sense of that? And how do we then sketch that range of futures that you might be faced with? Will we see indeed in 20 years, a, a Melbourne that is just keeps growing along the periphery where you've got six, seven, eight million people living in Melbourne across uh, the size of three times that's, that's larger than London with a very low density or will cities be forced to be much more dense? And, and obviously we need to have smart density where people will be much more living much more closer to transport arrangements and amenities and services. 
And so all those kind of things would be really relevant for, for an, a construction organization to understand, okay, how do I, what do I set in place today to be able to be successful in that future? Sorry, I just had to unmute myself. I apologize for muting myself there, but I had a dog going to bark in the background, the fun of working from home, gents. <laughs> so, 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 um, okay, so on that basis then, if you do look at other cities around the world, you do have, for example, if we take New York, uh, people do travel for work. Uh, it's very expensive to live in the center of New York, very exciting. Uh, but obviously also very exp expensive as well. So people do travel in for work. So so based on that, we are talking about infrastructure. Um, so not just spending, but I'll just touch back on one story. A few years ago, um, as part of the Million Dollar Business Club, we spent a weekend here in Melbourne with a futurist by the name of Craig Rispin. And we're all different businesses. So we had a guy who owned a uh, one of Australia's largest pizza franchise, which he sold for $40 million. Um, we had another guy who owned, you know, a billion dollar construction business. Um, so it was, it was a range of all different industries uh, sitting there in the room. But one of the interesting things he did was he challenged us all um, in regards to our own businesses. So he'd really done his homework on us, but he, ch he challenged me in respect to how are you just not going to lose your business to robo advice? You know, he, he really made us think about the future. Uh, he challenged the construction guy. He gave an example in Belgium uh, where um, a, they, it was a, I think it was a 60 apartment building uh, was built all from 3D printing um, and it was constructed in the space of four days. Uh, you know, so from uh, everything was done via 3D printing. So, you know, the the way that we've got the, you know, the large construction companies today. Now, obviously, now those apartments were smaller in size than say your, you know, your 80 square uh, or 50 or 60 square apartments that you might get today. But the point was, is that when you've got a housing crisis, these are some of the things uh, that you might be considering. So obviously, as per a country grows, uh, technology has changed the way we are. You know, the, the last uh, industrial revolution for us, and please correct me, you gents to the experts, please me correct me if I'm wrong, but if we look back to just the technology revolution that we started in the mid 80s, realistically, uh, with, with the internet um, and how we have changed. So if you could give me a bit of an example of, from your perspective, uh, now, Sander, I know you haven't lived in uh, Melbourne as long as I have, uh, you know, so, but it's, um, but based on that, can you just give us a bit of an example of that change that has occurred since the mid eighties, especially with technology and how Australia has advanced in respect to Asia and being a bit of a, you know, financial hub in Asia by on the basis of technology as well. And then if we look 10 years into the future, what, what are some of the things that companies should be looking at as well? So, and I'm talking about even little things like, for example, having all of our staff working remotely. Um, it horrified me that we actually had to do that. Everyone's done really well. Uh, they've all done far better than I have. So it's, uh, I'm just too social, yeah. you know? So, so uh, do you want, do you want to talk about, give those specific examples as well? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I mean, you, you, you talked about uh, working from home. I mean, those are some of them, particularly around technology, uh, some of those trends can really be, be interesting to see how quickly they, they accelerate at a certain point and they reach a tipping point. So, I mean, you know, I always name the example of the, of the iPhone, you know, it's now just over a decade old, but how profoundly that has changed the way that we work and interact and live and, and, and all, do all those kind of things. 
And, and that's, that goes to a quote that Bill Gates once mentioned about, you know, we always overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years, but we underestimate the change in the next 10 years. And that's because these technologies, we don't know how quick they go. And that goes to the point of the, of the gentleman that spoke uh, about the, the 3D printing of houses in, uh, in, in, in Belgium. The question, if you would ask him, say, okay, great. So what does that look like in 10 years from now? And that's really, really difficult because will we then have, uh, you know, a construction industry that is dominated by 3D printing? Or will it still be in its in its infancy and still be you know adjusted here and there, and that's where scenario planning is really powerful because we don't know how quick those those trends will evolve and how quickly they accelerate. It can go really fast. I mean, when you think about what you just mentioned working from home, um, I think Zoom, what we're using today, uh, is now worth more, almost double uh, the the market capitalization of the biggest three U.S. domestic airlines. You know, Southwest Airlines, Delta, and American Airlines. They are now uh, almost double in terms of market cap of what it was before the pandemic. So, so these technologies can really change things. And, and what, what that means for a city like Melbourne is to understand how do we make sure that it's not about predicting which technologies will flourish and which will be the, the, the future. That's, that's really hard to, to, to determine. You can do that at a mega level. It's really about how do you build a city that can attract the talent that wants to work here that is, a, is really, really good working with those technologies. And what kind, how do we make sure that the businesses that are here can thrive in that environment, whether that's on the global stage or regional or local. And that's really where, where the, uh, the places like Melbourne really need to understand how do we set ourselves up for a city that can prosper in that kind of environment, that can attract the right talent, that has the right infrastructure to do these kind of things, that has the, the right level of education that can bring those families here, that can educate the workforce of the future. All those things come together, and that's really where you want to look as a, uh, as a as a business planner to say, how does that play out, and what does that mean for my organization? Yeah, and I think that's where scenario planning brings in and helps with the preparedness. Um, and so once you build a range of plausible futures, and typically we build four scenarios, you can start rehearsing those futures and start building, well, what are the implications of each of these different futures? And then once I understand the implications, I can start thinking about how do I respond to those futures um, and build strategic options so that I have a toolkit, depending which way that future goes, I've got a toolkit of strategies that I can um, adapt to and use. And I think a good example of, of, of an uh, industry that's probably really thinking about that right now is the education sector in Victoria. Hugely disrupted, not only is it for their workforce, but also for their students and how do they adapt now um, to this new uh, normal as people are terming it. Interesting you say this, Cynthia, because um, uh, I've got uh, a couple of clients or directors of an ASX listed company called ReadCloud. Um, so it's it's uh, they have developed uh, apps, which you know we're talking about. You know, the last thing, you know, thank God my children are 21 and 24 because I struggled to get them to do homework, never mind homeschooling, that would have cured me. Uh, so it's, uh, but it's, um, the, now what's interesting is you guys might be too young to remember, but I think I'm leaning to my left because I, that's just where I used to carry my school books on with the bag on the one <laughs> strap, you know, and carrying 20 kilos of school books around every single day, you know, and, and back then I wasn't the, you know, the strapping strap 
strong man I am today. I was a 60 kilo weakling. <laughs> so it's, um, but I think I've got a permanent mark on my shoulder from the bag strap. Um, now, my, my eldest or my kids who are 21 and 24, they at least had a backpack, uh, but they still had to carry their books around. Now, ReadCloud, as an example, has put out all those books into an app. But one of the things it actually does, um, like this homeschooling as an example, the teachers know what the kids have actually been doing and what they've haven't they have they just opened it up what are they doing what are they studying what are they completing what are they feeling it's their life for them so they know if sanders slackening off a bit uh you know so it's probably be more synth slackening off wouldn't it no <laughs> it's uh but yes yep and and but that's that's the example though of you know the where technology has actually come in uh to these schools where they're now looking at that technology. Originally, it was for the classroom, so kids don't have to lug around all these books and potentially lose a book. They're expensive to replace and all the rest of it. Better for the environment also too, um, but moving forward. So I'll just use them as an example of, you know, forward thinking um, on that respect as well. So it's, um, I think that, you know, is a, is a great example. But also too, if, if we can talk about, you know, I'll, I'll finish off with uh, two questions, but, Basically, how do, you, how do you, as you said earlier in the opening, you have a whole range of different clients. How do you actually engage the client? So let's say we've got, we've got a client um, and how are you going to engage that client? They might be turning over $10 million. They don't just want to stay in business. They want to thrive over the next two decades. They've got all the energy, great, great ideas, great plans to actually do it. And it can be, you can use any example from any industry that you've worked in, uh, but how do you actually start that client on that journey? How do you engage them? Because I know it's not just talking to the business owners, you're talking to everyone that works there. You're actually engaging everyone, getting them to think. So can you, can you bring us on that sort of forward journey of what you do with a client, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a number of ways and it really depends on what the client's trying to achieve. Yeah. So there's, there's a range of um, demands that we're seeing uh, for scenario planning. Initially, we thought everyone wanted to do a deep dive, as you're talking about, and, and become responsive organisations um, and do a program of work. But actually, there's quite um, a varied uh, range of um, uses for scenario planning. So what do I mean by that? So some of our clients want to educate their organisations about the changing world. And so there are a couple of things we do. One of the products we have is called a taster. And that really helps you understand the, the background of scenario planning, why you would use it and the benefits. And we use an interactive case study to involve the start, their staff um, in that process. What that allows them to do is to start to think about the world briefly, stretch their frames of reference, as we call it, um, and then maybe look at a business case of whether they want to do more. There are other things we can do there. We're uh, developing a product now, which is training and coaching in scenario planning to start building that emerging leader set um, and that capability within an organisation to, to start looking at the future differently and start planning for it differently. But then there are some organisations that come to us and said, we don't need a deep dive, but what we do want to do is challenge um, our current strategy. And, and we do that in the form of a sprint, a scenario planning sprint. So that's typically about six weeks, um, two to three days of contact. And that allows the organisation to 
it's not too intrusive because you know most organizations are quite busy but it allows her to come out with some really insightful outcomes to challenge their current strategies and a, a good example of that is an agricultural research body that um, has panels that build strategies for each of their different um, agricultural industries they use um, a series of sprints and they've found that immediately immediately relevant they've used that uh, the very next day in, in challenging their strategy and forming new strategies for their business. Um, and actually, one of the stories we love is this one particular panel has was the first panel to actually build their own set of strategies um, that was uh, endorsed by the board. So then the final way we do it is, I think, what you were alluding to, Tony, which is a deep dive and building a roadmap to become a responsible organisation. And there, that's a series, it, it, it takes roughly about four months to do. And we explore their organization uh, by understanding their business model. We analyze it to look at what their key vulnerabilities are, what their competitive advantages are. And that helps us build a scope um, around what are their boundaries that they want to look at? What, what's the time frame they want to look at? And who are some of the key stakeholders that need to be involved? And then we can explore the external environment or what we've talked about, the trends, whether it be macro trends or industry specific trends. Then we move into building the scenarios and really understanding what the, these futures might hold by utilizing the trends and the key uncertainties to do that. So we build a framework and we typically come out with uh, four key scenarios um, or uh, plausible futures. And from there, we start to then think about, well, okay, what does that mean for the organization? That's where the rubber really hits the road is that what are these implications for us as an organization? How will it uh, impact our operating environment? And what do we need to do about it? What are the responsive, uh, responses or options then we go about a process of testing those options. We call it wind tunnel testing. How robust are those options, depending on which of those different futures play out? And then finally, if you really want to thrive, we suggest to our clients, and a few of our clients, a global miner and a regulator have done this. We use a combination effect to build um, an adaptive strategic roadmap. So that's turning scenarios into actionable strategies. So how do we actually implement that into our organization? But then what's important, we need to start monitoring which way is the future heading. Um, and once we understand as we start keep monitoring the, that future or the future as it, it starts to unfold, we can see which one of those actionable strategies we need to put in play to make sure we navigate that future uh, successfully. Yeah, uh, I really actually like uh, the word plausible future. Um, yeah, so sorry, Sandy, you're going to add to that? No, since explained it fantastically, and we, and we always do those steps really what you said to earlier as well. We, we try to engage many people within the organization because we find that this process is, is all the better for having the, uh, as many people as possible from the organization involved, all the way from uh, the people that are just starting out in their career to the people that have been there very long and the senior leaders, because that gives you the richness of the, of the process that Sint uh, described. I really think uh, there's a, the, what was one of Australia's greatest ever financial services businesses and three letter, three letter word might start with A and end with P, might have an M in the middle, but it's, uh, they could really use your help right now. So it's, uh, so it's, um, spent, you know, just uh, watching a company self-destruct, unfortunately. Uh, but such a was, was once upon a time, 
you know, such a magnificent organization. So it's, uh, which is a shame, just what's happened over to it over the last 20 years. Yeah. On our last question uh, that I'm going to ask, I'm, I'm going to open this up by talking about something that is a passion of mine leading to the question, if that's okay. So I've always said that realistically, Australia was built on the back of immigrants. Um, the first immigrants might not have come here voluntarily, uh, a couple of hundred years ago, but basically financially we were, we were built on the back of immigrants probably from just after World War II uh, predominantly um, with a huge flux of immigrants in the mid 50s and 60s. And what I found is that the, SM, the very successful SME owners today, a lot of them are children of immigrants. Uh, you know, my parents were immigrants here, um, as an example. So a lot of the really successful business owners today and even executives of companies were actually children of immigrants. And I think one of the things I see is that when you had somebody who goes and immigrates to a new country, and we're talking, say, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, or say 50s and 60s, um, no necessarily skills or university qualifications uh, like we might have today. There was no certainly no headhunting from companies going offshore to try and find um, executives like we are today. And basically they come here as, um, you know, my kid's grandfather on their mum's side of the family would say one suit, you know, a suitcase, an empty suitcase and one shoe. Um, and that was basically it. But they worked hard. Uh, they go and build something and you witness that as their children. Uh, so, and now they've got their third generation here, usually being their grandkids now, and you've got that intergenerational wealth transfer. But what we've seen obviously is when they first immigrated here, you had the commission flats all around Melbourne, which were basically where the immigrants would come and stay for six months until they got themselves settled up. You had a lot of manufacturing, which are now, uh, which in Brunswick and in Carlton and you know, all the big warehouses and in Collingwood, uh, um, you know, were just full of warehouses, which are now all trendy apartments, of course. Um, and what you saw though, is you had a lot of the immigrants. So for example, the laborers, they would come here, bought the house in Broad Meadows, uh, worked at the Ford factory out there. Uh, they, you know, they worked on the assembly line. They saved their money, bought their second house, bought their third house, bought their fourth house. They're actually now sitting on millions of dollars worth of property and in their seventies and eighties right now. Uh, but basically they save money, bought the next house, save money, bought the next house, might've had three or four children. Those three or four children though were, you know, who are now my age, 50 odd years old, uh, might've been university educated uh, uh, or not, have been SME owners, built their own businesses, but they didn't want to live in Broadmeadows. They've sort of moved in and their children who are now in their sort of early twenties, mid twenties, are university educated and working as professionals in the city and don't want to, don't want the house that grandpa or grandma is going to give them, you know, in Broadmeadows. They want to sell that and live in the apartment. They don't want the quarter acre block with a hills hoist, you know, in the back. They actually want to live in the apartment in the city because that's where they work. They want to live uh, close to where they work and they're on a good wage and the apartments there. So that's been the demographic shift, but the demographic shift has also been obviously all those factories have closed down. As I said, they're all trendy apartments now. We don't have the manufacturing here. So for looking at Australia trends over the next 20 years, you know, uh, where are we seeing Australia and their thriving business perspective, you know, from infrastructure, transport, technology hubs, construction, employment trends, where do you see some of the things over, and we won't hold you to it, so we won't, we won't have dinner in 20 years time, said, you said this, guys, <laughs> so it's, uh, but where do you see those trends sort of heading over the next two decades? 
Yeah, no, it's 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 a fascinating question, and and, and we, we 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 talk about it almost daily because obviously we live here as well, and, and I'm 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 a, I'm an immigrant as well. I've moved here. I met you when you first came here. That's made you made you ride your bike up a mountain. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so yeah, so, uh, no, absolutely. And now it's it's a great point, and it's really about um, what what happens with those next generations. I heard a stat once a couple of years ago that there are about two million empty bedrooms in Melbourne, and that's because a lot of those baby boomers were. Children have moved out, but they're staying in those uh, those houses. And at some stage, that that's going to be transferred to that either the wealth or the housing and whatever that means. And more often than not, people aren't able to do that because of uh, some of the uh, the pension rules around it. But what's really interesting there is, is you touched on it, that younger generation um, is is less interested in that ownership. And it's one of the key trends that we're seeing. Is called for, we call it from ownership to access. And it's really where these younger people are asking themselves look, do I really want to own that car or do I just want to have access to mobility? And so those are really key things that now with new technology really allows that swapping and, and formalization of all that kind of renting that you can see on Airbnb, Uber, and the list is expanding on a daily basis in terms of what you can do as an organization to release that latent capacity. And, and what's really interesting about that uh, from your perspective, Tony, I can imagine is that has huge impacts on how people build up assets over their life. And what does that mean? And then also, what does that mean for their education in terms of, I mean, you touched on it earlier that in the 50s and 60s, it was much more rare to, to be formally educated in tertiary education on the university level. These days, the numbers are much higher. I suspect that that's going to change yet again. I suspect that uh, our, you know, I've got two young daughters. The, it's very unlikely that they won't go through, or very unlikely that they'll go through the same kind of education experience that I went through and you and I went through. And what I mean by that is we did so, there was some research done a couple of years ago and it looked at the, you know, the, the average graduate from university today in Australia is expected to have 17 different jobs across five different sectors across their career. And that means how do you train for that? How do you, how do you educate someone for that? And so that means really about what is it, will someone at the end of, you know, in 20 years from now will still sign up for a four year formal education degree after, you know, by the time the, 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 the diploma or the graduation uh, is, is printed that it's out of date, or will it be much more micro-credentialing, lifelong learning? And what does that mean when they have do, do, that many jobs, when they work on Monday and uh, Tuesday, they work for a certain business, on uh, Wednesday and Thursday, they work for another business, and on Friday, they run their own company. So what does that mean for the type of skill sets that they need to maintain? How do they maintain a portfolio of jobs and there's also a portfolio of skill sets and how do they constantly navigate that? So those are just some of the questions that I think will become much more prominent that education institutions have to react to, but also financial planners in terms of how, what does that mean for how do you advise someone to navigate their own career in life? Yeah, and Tony, I was, I was just thinking, I, you know, I'm just looking to my crystal ball to answer your question, but uh, but no, in all seriousness, it's one of the things we can do is start to look at the um, how the trends are, are playing out. So, are they accelerating? Are they decelerating? Uh, are they reversing in some cases? And you know, this one of the trends we're seeing at the moment, and that is near and reshoring of um, you know uh, operations from uh, abroad. And a good example of that is Telstra. They've just committed to bringing back um, all their voice uh, back back onshore, which is a huge, huge uh, uh, change. And when you think about from an investment portfolio and some of the things driving that is 
what we started to see the supply chain risk. Now this was happening before the pandemic, but it's been accelerated because of the pandemic. Um, and so the exposure to those supply chain risks, um, lots of companies, regions, even um, countries are starting to look at how do we bring them closer to home, either onshore or in, within a region. Um, so I think that that is another trend you're going to start to see uh, more and more of, um, and, but soon we'll see um, uh, how, how long that plays out for. Yep, okay. So to be interesting, I've, I've often said that um, Australia does have the opportunity uh, to realistically be a global or probably predominantly the Eastern Seaboard, uh, but have the real opportunity to be a technology hub of Asia as well. And, you know, Sandy, you did speak about that opportunity in your TED talk as well, which with your permission, uh, we will attach uh, to this link if it's okay as well. Uh, so, but um, I, I've often thought of that, you know, if we do have the become that technology hub or one of, because, uh, you know, Asia does have um, some, you know, biotechnology and technologies, um, and it can be cheaper to develop these things with um, with some extremely intelligent minds over in China, as an example, than what it might be here um, or other parts of Asia. But it's um, uh, we really do have the ability to be able to grow as a country financially, not just from ripping uh, ore out of the ground or metals out of the ground and exporting. I think we do have the ability. We once were the big exporters of sheep and, you know, Australia was built on cattle and sheep and, you know, then it became uh, mining. And I just think that my, my personal perspective, I'd love to get your view, uh, technology over the next and the growth in our um, financial reliability uh, from technology could be a good, a good one looking forward over the next two decades as well. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. And technology is really one of those key um, mega trends that are really uh, a lot of our, our, our clients are worried about and also see the opportunities for. And if you just, I mean, if you just look back 10 years ago in the second quarter of 2010, the 10 largest companies in the world by market cap were basically a combination of energy, retail and, and banking. And there were two technology companies in there, Apple and Microsoft. If you look at the top 10 today, the first seven of those 10 are tech companies and they represent also close to 90% of that market cap on that top 10. In other words, technology is eating the, the world at the moment. What's really well, Apple's, Apple, Apple's, Apple's current market cap is the entire ASX 300 combined. Correct, correct. And so mm. what's really interesting about that is that, um, and, and, and I'll, in, in terms of answering your question, that is now also creating a whole new playing field. And what I, what I mean by that is, there, during the, you talked about the, the, the previous industrial revolutions, during one of those previous industrial revolutions, we had also the second Gilded Age at the end of the 19th century, where the names of Rockefeller and Vanderbilt and Carnegie Mellon really became those known as those robber barons, and they were broken up eventually because they became too powerful. And what's really interesting today is that the names of like Zuckerberg and Bezos are starting to become synonymous with some of those some of those uh, names of having a lot of power, you can start to see an inkling of that conversation happening across the world. And the reason I mentioned this is, is because when you talk about technology in the world, that is becoming so dominant. The, the influence of you know, connected devices, big data, artificial intelligence, that is all coming together. The spoils are really going to the big players at the moment. And those are now uh, splitting up what they call the splinter net almost in terms of you've got the US, 
and China rapidly decoupling each other. Whether that will work, we'll find out. But what's really interesting about that is, will we be able to be successful in navigating that kind of future where the really the big organizations dominate these kind of sectors or and this is what, where i think you australia has a unique opportunity and we might see a path forward is things around artificial intelligence really raise profound questions about how we want to use technology in our lives and i think that's where australia has a huge opportunity one of the reasons why i moved to australia is all about the fair go and the way that technology is used is going to be incredibly impactful uh, and pervasive through our lives. And this is maybe where Australia has a unique opportunity to develop its own kind of uh, technology development mindset. And how do you want to use that onshore, but also how do you, what does that mean for your kind of organizations offshore as well? And I think there's a huge opportunity to, to, to Australia to come together and work on these things. And this comes back to that mega region idea as well, where you work together instead of being competitors on the national stage. How do you bring that together? How do you complement each other's skill sets to really put a unique value proposition on the global stage? Okay. Uh, Sander and Synth, I want to sincerely thank you both. Uh, really appreciate today. Uh, we will be doing a lot of work together over the next two decades, as you will be uh, with some of our clients uh, as we move forward as well. But it, I think today has been really, really good, a real eye-opener uh, that people don't have to guess what's going on out there. They can actually sit down and actually work with experts to actually, it's, it's having that outside influence come in and saying, what are the opportunities? What are the threats? What are the strategies that you can actually build? Are you missing some opportunities by not exploring these strategies as well? So, uh, so I, I sincerely thank you. Looking forward to working together over the next two decades. Um, you know, I've got 55 years of life left in me. So, um, so we've got a lot to plan for on that life as well. So gentlemen, um, we will, uh, with your permission, put uh, all your details, your LinkedIn contacts, your website, uh, everything for clients to be able to reach out to you as well. Um, and Sander, we will also uh, put your TED Talk. We might actually post that um, tomorrow as well. So, so people can actually listen to that TED Talk. Easier to find it rather than uh, if we just link it um, as well. So gentlemen, once again, sincerely appreciate your morning. Uh, sorry that you had to put up with me. Jamie with his mouth operation is a bit tender at the moment, but really thank you, gents. Thank you as well, uh, Tony, and thank you all. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for the time. Great to catch up again and great to talk to your listeners. Yeah, looking forward to having lunch with you both. One Thanks day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.